0: Crime World is brought to you in association with Manscaped, who provide an incredible, complete men's grooming experience. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools and is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. We have an exclusive offer for Crime World listeners. 20% off and free shipping with the code CRIMEWORLD at manscaped.com. He was a loner. He was suffering from mental health issues. He had a lot of material on, on his computers. You know, ISIS propaganda, violent videos and, and things like that. That's the thing that is very difficult to, to deal with because you can have all the increased powers for your intelligence and police, but really it's about trying to find a way to connect people.
1: I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. A UN report released earlier this summer estimates that thousands of ISIS fighters have poured into Afghanistan, where Taliban rule may once again provide a breeding ground for extremism. Already, a suicide bombing at Kabul airport has raised fears that the terror group is set to make a frightening comeback. But should we be more concerned about the events in New Zealand last week, where a lone wolf ISIS-inspired attacker struck in a supermarket and, armed with a knife, lashed out at innocent shoppers, injuring six, many critical. Today, I'm talking to crime reporter Jared Savage of the New Zealand Herald about the events at the Lynn Mall shopping centre. He tells me about refugee Ahmed Samsuddin, who was radicalised in an armchair in his adopted country and who used New Zealand's inadequate terrorist laws and media suppression orders in his favour. This is Crime World Extra, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So Ahmed Mohammed San-Suddin, um I mean, he is, the pro- or was, shall we say, the proverbial ticking time bomb, wasn't he? Um, obviously, The world only knows who he is because of what he did in a supermarket in Auckland last Friday, but you were aware of him
0: before that, Jared? Yes, um, we had, I I had been following him since about June 2017 um, when he first got arrested Uh, and he was only arrested on possession of objectionable material, which was the the material that he had on his computer, you know, ISIS propaganda, violent videos and, and things like that. So that was the, that was the court case, which, which went through relatively minor stuff. But of course we knew the backstory, which was that, you know, he had talked about wanting to fly to Syria and join ISIS over there and their forces. Um, that he, if, you know, he talked about with his friends and his flatmates, uh, if, if he ever, if he was stopped by the New Zealand police from going, um, then he would commit, a, like, a, you know, he talked about committing a lone wolf attack on Queen Street, which is our biggest our biggest street in metropolitan Auckland, or at Anzac Day. Anzac Day is one of our big military um, commemorations. So that was the backstory. So, the, so going through court was basically like, well, you know, here's this guy that has, you know, he's been, Looking at this material, and you know, you, you could say he's an ISIS sympathizer, perhaps, but the backstory was a lot more serious. And, um, but of course, that never really came out, um, it, until last week, basically. So, what happened was is that so he went through the court, um, it was relatively minor stuff. They, he, they kept him in custody for about a year, and then he was, he pleaded guilty to it and he ended up getting a, a very minor, like a minor sentence, which was a correct sentence, but a minor one of, of supervision. Um, And then basically the very next day he went out and did the same thing. So he went and he went out and bought a hunting knife from a, from a store, you know, 30, 30 odd centimetres long, you know, the big Rambo type knives. Um, he knew that he was being watched. So instead of carrying it home with him to his apartment, he got it couriered to his apartment, um, went home, started looking at, you know, more violent videos. And bear in mind, this is literally about 24 hours after he'd been released. Uh, and then the police, mm. police moved in on, in on him again, arrested him, and, um, and charged him again with the objection of material um, charges, possession of a offensive weapon. Uh, and, and that's been trundling through the courts again for like the last three years um and again he 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 got out of he you know he was found guilty on some acquitted of others on technicalities basically um released about eight weeks ago and he's been under 24 hour monitoring by our police our special tactics group pretty much that entire time uh, and yet he was still able to to attack six or seven people on Friday so, it's been a long process to get here, and bear in mind this has all been suppressed until his death. Because uh, under our laws here, he was he was claiming to be a refugee from from Sri Lanka that he was a person you know under persecution there. If he ever went back, he'd be in danger. So we, by law, we can't identify um, anyone who's claiming to be a refugee. So we've we've been hamstrung until basically mm. twenty four hours after his death. So it's been a busy few days here.
1: So. He arrived in, sorry, he was 32, I think, when he, when he died. And he died, of course, after this the attack. We might go into the details of that a little bit later. But uh, he was shot dead by the police. Um, but he arrived in New Zealand in 2013 from Sri Lanka looking for refugee status and was granted it. He arrived as a student claiming he'd been persecuted in Sri Lanka. Um, what, what are Tamil Muslims and, and why are they persecuted there. It's a long way off for us, Sri Lanka, so we might be that au fait with it.
0: Yeah, and I'm no, I'm no expert as well, so I'll, I'll tread carefully, um, but it relates to there's been a long civil war in Sri Lanka between uh, the Tamil community, which is a, an ethnic minority uh, in Sri Lanka, and basically the, the ruling the ruling forces in Sri Lanka for a long time, 20, 25 years which ended about a decade or so ago, maybe a bit longer. So there's been a long history of persecution and, and like, a long civil war. So he, Samsonine, claimed when he kissed, So he's he's a Tamil, but he's also a Muslim, which has created some more confusion here because, generally speaking, that would be another 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 group. Um, but he came here saying, look, if I go back, like been, I've been tortured and kidnapped um, with my father and we've been you know, persecuted. If, if I need to be able to stay here in, in New Zealand um, and claim that refugee status. So that was, so he actually came, he came here on a student visa in 20, October 2011. Um, our immigration officials didn't grant it to him, didn't grant him refugee status. They, they, had, they had concerns about his story. Um, but you have appeal, appeal rights. So he appealed to the Immigration Protection Tribunal, which is like a, a court, I suppose. Uh, and they they thought, well, yeah, there are some inconsistencies in his story. Um, however, we find him credible. They had a psychologist's report that said he, he presented as a highly damaged young man. He, bear in mind, he was 22 back then. Um, he is suffering from PTSD. Um, there was physical evidence of scarring on his body. So they said, yeah, we, you know, on the balance, we... We believe your story. Now, that was in 2013. So when the police, so when he tried to go to Syria, uh, well, the police believe he tried to go to Syria in 2017, they literally arrested him at international international airport here in Auckland. He was booked on a a one-way flight to Kuala Lumpur, I believe. And that's when they went into his apartment. They found the hunting knife. They found all this, um, these very violent, depraved, material on his computer Um, and they on his computer as well they found essentially doctored or forged medical records and doctored witness statements from his from his family to back up his his claim so that triggered whilst you know he got charged on the criminal stuff this material was gathered sent to immigration and said look we need to look at this guy's refugee status again and it was actually cancelled on, on the basis of, of, you know, this fraud. Um, the police interviewed him and his family. Um, and their stories didn't quite – and I hasten to add, they don't share his extreme ideology. They're, they're scattered around the world. But their story didn't match up with, with what he had said. Um, there had been persecution of sorts, but nowhere near as serious as what he was claiming. And so whilst the criminal stuff was underway – Um, And at this point, it was a national security issue. So our prime minister's being briefed, like, you know, everyone's kind of all over it. At the same time, they're trying to cancel his refugee status um, so that we can try and uh, deport him um, once that ends. But, um, of course, again, you have appeal rights and everything was on hold until the criminal case ended. Um, And so that was another thing which was underway at the time that he was out and about in the community. So it's been a very... Um, It sounds like a mess. It sounds like an absolute mess from start to finish. Very complicated. Yeah, it really Mm -hmm. is.
1: But when he was arrested in 2017 on his way to Syria to join ISIS, uh, the police had obviously been flagged about him before this. They didn't just kind of, you know, pick him up at the airport and realise where he was off to. So there must have been some signs or, you know, had he... When he'd come as a student, had he attended university? Had he got a degree? Was he out in the workplace? Was he living in the community as kind of normal? But was it all behind the scenes? Or did people realise that this was a guy who had been radicalised?
0: Yeah. he. So he came here on the student visa, but basically did not continue with his study. So he got here on the visa, never studied. He was picking up sort of casual work in, in retail stores, um, attending attending one of the mosques at, at the university uh, and people did have concerns about him uh, within, the, within the Muslim community. So, But what had brought him to the police attention was the bombings by ISIS in Brussels and Paris a few years back, 2016, I believe, or late 2015 even. And he had posted on Facebook um, pictures and videos of of the attacks, with supportive messages saying, basically, say this is great, and you know you've been persecuting Muslims, and now we're coming, we're coming after you. So that raised the red flag. That was picked up and sent to our security. Uh, I think, I believe it was. It might have even been London Metro Police. Might have might have picked that up in there, monitoring of the situation. They flagged it with with the police here, who have a counterterrorism division and also our intelligence uh, agency. So from about the beginning of 2016, he was on their list of people to watch. And so we know that they were carefully going around and speaking to people that knew him. Um, and in and, and the lead up to him flying and, and being arrested at the at the airport, he, he even did a dummy run, a practice run, if you will, to Samoa, which is a small Pacific island, about three hours from here, so he went on a short trip in late 2016, essentially to see whether he'd be stopped at the airport, uh, and they didn't stop him because he was just going to Samoa, and you can't really go anywhere from there except back to New Zealand. So um, they, but he did that with they believe with the purpose of yeah, seeing whether or not he would trigger uh, the attention um, of the of the authorities. Um, they were interviewing people that he attended the mosque with, and, and you know, he was saying to them openly, yeah, I, I want to go to Syria and, you know, I believe in this very extreme violent ideology. Um, if I don't, if I, you know, if, if I get stopped here, then I will, um, you know, I'll, I'll commit an atrocity. Very similar story with his flatmate that he had living with him who moved in. They, you know, he didn't really know much about him, but he had a flatmate there who gave a statement to the police, and, um, Leading up to when he was arrested, actually, it was prior to his arrest, saying, you know, this guy's doing, he's watching these terrible videos, he's asking me questions about Syria, how do I get to Raqqa, um, do you have any contacts there that can help me? So, yeah, he was very, it's it, it, certainly his arrest at the airport didn't come out of the blue. They'd been, they'd been monitoring him quite closely.
1: Is there any indication at this point whether he was radicalised in Sri Lanka or did it happen from an armchair in Auckland.
0: Um, I, I had seen some comment from his um, from his mother this week saying that she believed some neighbours had sort of um, had quite... Neighbours in Sri Lanka had had quite a bit of influence on him. However, from talking to my sources here, um, they believe it happened in, a, in, a, in his armchair, in his living room. Um, he was... He was a loner. Um, he was suffering from mental health issues. Uh, he really f- he had a lot of material on, on his computer. So the police here think it was... Certainly there's been no evidence or indication that other people here in New Zealand were radicalising him. Uh, there's been a lot of rumours circulating around, but certainly nothing that I've seen indicates that um, there was a group of them here in Auckland. It very much seems that he was... Alone in this, and yeah, I mean, with the power of the internet, um, you can access anything, right? So that's that's certainly the belief right now.
1: And in Sri Lanka, of course, in 2019, there were those horrendous Easter bombings when um, terrorists targeted churches and luxury hotels, including the Shangri La. Um, now at one point, that was being blamed on our sort of as a retaliation for the Christchurch massacre which happened uh, there in, in in New Zealand and the significance of that is is just enormous when you think of I suppose the population of New Zealand which is similar to ourselves as we've spoken about before and the idea that 50 people were killed um, in those in those um, mosques was horrendous but there seems to be mixed views on that or, or debate on that, whether the Sri Lankan bombings were actually retaliation to that or that the bombers were actually stockpiling weaponry and bombs before that even happened. But there's obviously some sort of a correlation between events that have happened in New Zealand, events that have happened in Sri Lanka, and you got somebody radicalised and mentally ill like um, like Sandine, And obviously he's affected by in some way, was there evidence on his computers that he was following these events, or that he was supporting them? Or
0: um, it's hard to we don't know yet. I mean, clearly there will be a link there between. Uh, if you look at his history, um, he his his explanation for these videos that he would watch was that you know he was and sharing around was um, that he was spreading the word about atrocities committed against Muslims. Um, This is well prior to what happened in in Christchurch in in March 2019. He's been in custody all that time, so we don't know, he wouldn't wouldn't have had access to any um, electronic devices. Uh, Even on his release conditions, he wasn't supposed to have any, um, you know, iPads, iPhones, laptops, things like that. So, but clearly he'll be aware of those events. They would have fed into his ideology. They would have fed into his thinking of, of persecution and wanting to take revenge. Um, I suppose if anything like that does exist, or if he's hidden something away, that'll come out. Um, obviously, there's a massive police investigation at the moment into everything that happened. So I wouldn't be surprised if some material came out of that. Um, but certainly nothing that we're aware of at, at this point in time. So he was eight weeks being followed by police
1: 24-7. I mean, that is an enormous job, like... You're, you must be talking 50, 60 officers working on that. I mean, it's hard to follow somebody. I'm sure you know that yourself in your, in your own job if you've tried it. Um, you just don't have the resources. I mean, I, I just find it extraordinary when when I, you know, I hear of officers actually following somebody for, you know, for a number of hours even. Um, so there must have been a huge amount of resources going into that.
0: Yeah, that's right. So, yeah. Um Obviously, they knew where he was was living. He was had sort of essentially been released to a, a mosque here, who had agreed to take him in, and with the idea of trying to moderate his his, uh, his zealotry. Um, this in the suburb of New Lynn, which is obviously where the uh, the attack happened in the supermarket. What a complicated issues, as well as as you're right, a huge amount of resources. I think they were talking about thirty or forty officers involved in watching them, including members of our, what we would call uh, STG, the Special Tactics Group, so they're essentially the equivalent of, they do training with our military special forces, so they're kind of like, you know, they're our elite elite uh, officers in that regard, but there's not, there's not that many of them, and so, and currently we're in, complicating matters as well, is, is that it's, we're in currently in a lockdown here, so it means that there's not many people out and about you can go to the supermarkets and and other sort of uh, essential you know you can get petrol but there's only so many people allowed in the supermarkets at any one time therefore there's not as many people in the supermarket therefore it's harder to maintain your cover so you had these surveillance officers trying to follow him and you know keep an eye on him they can't get too close uh, you know, too regularly because you know there's only so many of them. If he starts, to, you know, he will know that he's been watched. Um, they can't break their cover essentially, so they weren't that close to him for that. You know, on Friday for that very reason. So um, it's certainly it's certainly a factor in, in what happened on Friday. Uh, they still no one, You know, they still managed to get to him get to him within about sixty seconds. And um, what, what Samson did basically pulled a large knife off the off the shelves and then started attacking other shoppers in the aisle
1: of a supermarket. And you're talking about is some sort of a bread knife or something? He 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 that was for sale in the supermarket.
0: Yeah. So he didn't, He wasn't carrying a weapon. He, he's pulled a large yeah kitchen knife off the off the shelf and uh, and then started stabbing people. Um, six people got hurt. Um, three of them critically. So you know their lives were. We're in danger. Um, last we heard, which was last night, um, everyone seems to have pulled through and, and they're out of ICU. So that's, and some have been discharged time. So thankfully no one's died from this. But um, yeah, and then there's an inquiry into the police officer actions. Uh, did everyone do enough? But I haven't really seen any criticism so far. No, that sounds like an absolute nightmare trying
1: to follow somebody in those conditions. And I mean, we can imagine here the queues to the supermarket and what have you got to do when you're queuing but look around you and look at who's standing behind you and you know see the familiar faces you, you, you'd you'd cop that fairly quickly so an opportunistic crime on his part but nonetheless he was very intent on doing something clearly that he, um, he lashed out like that so I suppose really a number of reasons we're talking about this first of all um with what's happening in Afghanistan, there are clearly fears that, you know, there's going to be resurgence of ISIS, that these lone wolf attacks are, you know, that, that every country is, is, is at risk, that there, there will and can be these lone wolf attacks. Do the systems in New Zealand fail? Is there criticism that... Um, is there criticism, for example, about those suppression orders you talked about, that you're not allowed to report on somebody as dangerous as this? Um, is there criticism about how slow that appeal system has been moving through the courts as, as you know, everybody clearly wanted to deport him and make him really another country's problem maybe? But And what about the treatment he was getting? I mean, did the whole system fail?
0: Yeah, it's a tough one because, you know, we've been wrestling with this and and basically, you know, writing these stories on the fly in the last couple of days. I think the biggest thing which has become clear, and this is kind of freaky, but basically three weeks ago, uh, I wrote a story about this guy um, and how it highlighted a hole in our legislation. There was no plan. This will come as a surprise to many people, including your own listeners, but... In New Zealand, we did not have an offence of planning or preparing for a, a terrorist attack. Um, so literally three weeks ago, I wrote that story. Um, we've obviously had the Royal Commission inquiry here, big investigation into what happened in, in Christchurch. They had come out and said, well, you know, and explored that that gap in, in the legislation. Um, the Crown here had tried to do some legal acrobatics to try and charge them, Um under the Terrorism Suppression Act, which we have, but the judge came out and said, "No, you can't." There's, you know, this is not for me to create law. It's it's for Parliament to do so. So he would actually sent his judgment. This is last year. He would actually sent the judgment to the to our um, you know to our government who were considering these changes. The bill to change the law was actually passed its first reading in May. Um, on Thursday, it was being debated at a select committee. Like, so this is the night before the attack, you know um, you know our, our MPs, our politicians were you know, quizzing the police and other people around this bit of legislation. Um, but it's seriously, it's been in the pipeline since 2014. Um, concerns have been raised about our legislation. Um, uh, we knew what the problem was there. And it had not been it had not been dealt with until it was um, too late so that's probably been the, the biggest the biggest criticism which has come out is that you know and look and you don't want to rush through legislation because in, in relation to terrorism because of you know trampling on civil liberties human rights things like that but clearly here um, the UK has a similar law Australia does our nearest neighbor um, so it does seem the, the judge even described it as an Achilles heel Um in his in his judgment, but it um, wasn't much he could do about it. So that's been the biggest probably debate in the last six days, uh, and also a lot of concerns been raised around. Well, why don't we just let him go to Syria? Why don't we just let him get on the get on the flight? Well, of course, you know we've signed up to agreements with the UN Security Council. You can't just let foreign returning fighters, as they know, known, go back and join terrorist groups like ISIS. So, you know, that's been a big debate. There's been debates around, you know, refugee status, how long it takes to appeal. Um, Our Prime Minister was clearly frustrated by that. Um, But in the end, they actually, the, the legal advice that the government received was, even if we were successful in appealing his refugee status, we probably couldn't have sent him back to Sri Lanka because he would be deemed a protected person in the legislation in which... You know, would be potentially sending somebody to their death. Um, so it's a tangled mess, really. And I, I think there will be—I think there will be some changes around, or there'll definitely be changes around the Terrorism Act. Uh, in relation to creating the the, the offensive planning or preparing an, uh, an attack. And I think they'll look at whether or not we can deport people for national security reasons. I think that, that'll get beefed up as well.
1: And maybe there's a bigger question, a bigger problem there that is one for every country and not just New Zealand, is really how do we deal with these people that have been radicalised? What does it mean to be radicalised? How is it happening? And... Is there any way of reversing that? Where is the expertise? And and you know, as this threat grows for everybody,
0: that's right. And I mean, and it's on both ends of the spectrum, right? We've had a we've had a extreme Islamist attack here recently, and then before that, we had an extreme right wing white nationalist. And you know, it's two ends of the spectrum, but it's all hate, isn't it? And I think that's. Mm. That's the thing that is very difficult to, to deal with because you can have all the you can have increased powers for your intelligence and police. You can have the laws, but really it's about trying to find a way to connect people back to. They're, they're isolated. These people are isolated. Um, they're listening to material that is feeding into um, that are giving them answers to the things that are scaring them or making them angry. And I, there is no there is no simple answer to this there's a you know the idea of social cohesion is one that gets raised um when we're discussing um these sorts of individuals and that's creating a community where people are connected and so we're not having these you know these extreme uh, extremists on on one end of this you know on on both Mm -hmm. ends of the spectrum but having communities where people can feel connected and feel part of something um whether or not that's sports clubs or churches or school clubs or sports, whatever it might be, um, people having picnics at the park together, that people are not being isolated and, and marginalised. Um, New Zealand's probably one of the few countries in the world where a terrorist attack, which we had in March, actually did bring the community closer together. So I think a lot of people would, you know, might have, I don't know, people that might not have had a lot to do day-to-day with, with Muslim communities Actually felt a lot more empathy and connection um, to them after after that because of what what had happened. There was an improvement there, um, and I guess it's up to all of us really to be a bit more open minded about everyone, everyone else in our community, and not just keep to ourselves and mm. and have this us and them sort of um, mentality because that's where. Extremism can be fostered, so it's it's a very difficult question, mm. uh, and for all of us to have a think about
1: it. Almost, nearly, Jared makes the gangland situation seem slightly more black and white, <laughs> maybe. Um, but it seems to me that um, that 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 hatred, that whatever was in San heart that day in the supermarket, that he, when he lashed out, it seems that whatever happened, it was a miracle that. Um, there haven't been and and hopefully there won't be any casualties apart from apart from himself and maybe there will be lessons to learn about what happened to him and what, what made him that way um, so so for now Jared Savage thank you very much
0: Thanks Nicola appreciate your time
1: You've been listening to Crime World a podcast from SundayWorld.com produced by by Ian Mullaney and edited by me Nicola Talent. if you like the podcast and love true crime why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe
0: Crime World is brought to you in association with Manscaped, who provide an incredible, complete men's grooming experience. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools and is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. We have an exclusive offer for Crime World listeners, 20% off and free shipping with the code CRIMeworld at manscaped.com.